0: My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today we are joined by another legend from the FBI. This gentleman worked with Robin Dreek, who everybody should be familiar with. Amazing personality, teaches influence, everything else. This is Jack Schaefer, who wrote The Like Switch. And it is a fantastic book on how to influence people, how to essentially build a relationship, albeit up to a friendship, to either collect evidence or establish rapport, uh, many different directions. How are you doing today, Jack?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you. Well, thank
0: you so much for coming on. And right before we went live, we started talking and things get exciting. I've had some previous guests on And they've all worked in the behavioral unit. I'm going to say behavioral unit because things have shifted over time. But I've had Ken Lanning on, Jim Clemente, Jim Fitzgerald, Robin Drake, Chris Voss. What is the
1: timeline for all these folks? Well, basically, the behavioral analysis unit began with John Douglas. And he first started cataloging and observing behaviors based on criminal criminals and their activities and they formed what's called the behavioral analysis unit and their basic job was to go to crime scenes and figure out who did it based on the artifacts at the crime scene and the behavioral analysis program split from the BAU and we primarily dealt with uh, suspects or subjects that were known to us and then what we would do is Uh, dissect their personalities, look for vulnerabilities in their personalities, and then develop strategies to interview them or get them to work with us in the case of spies. So the BAU typically did the criminal work, and the BAP, the Behavioral Analysis Program, typically worked for the National Security Unit, and we uh, usually had a, a suspect in mind and a target that we would work with to try to find strategies to get them to work for us.
0: Interesting. Did you have any kind of overlap, like people that maybe you didn't know? Uh, For example, Carlos the Jackal, I don't think he was known for a long time exactly who he was, or am I incorrect?
1: No, they didn't know who he was, but I I think that was before our time. The behavioral analysis program started around in the late 80s, early 90s is when it started picking up. And that's when they split off from the BAU, because they have... The BAU and the BAP have two distinct uh, functions. One is criminal and the other one is national security. So we handle counterterrorism, counterespionage, espionage.
0: Okay, that's fascinating. So is there uh, an investigative element or is it just strictly a recruitment and espionage element?
1: Uh, in, the B- in the behavioral analysis program, we're, we're uh, recruitment, we uh, help people interrogate. We, we assist agents in interrogating spies or potential spies, help them recruit people. What are the best ways to handle uh, recruitments or spotting and assessing? So we dealt mostly with the human side and the behavioral analysis unit handled the criminal side. So they, they have two different functions.
0: And when you talk national security, it's not necessarily foreign threats, too. From what I understand, you investigated an FBI agent at one time who was working a, I guess you'd say a source or informant, and you determined that their relationship may have been closer when you were watching their body language.
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. That happened in uh, Los Angeles, and I uh, participated in that investigation. So, we work domestic and international as long as it's okay. within the realm of national security.
0: Now, do you work hand in hand with the CIA? Because I know the CIA is not allowed to do anything if it's a citizen.
1: That's correct. Uh, typically, I worked, uh, most cases that we worked were uh, cases that were domestic. And if we had international cases, we would have to work with the CIA because they have tremendous resources overseas. So in the domestic cases, we did it ourselves. And in the international cases, we work with the CIA and other intelligence agencies, you know, the military.
0: Also have a, a, I don't know if it's a liaison or a legal attache group. Do you work with them too? I know um, I've had Eugene Casey on and he interviewed Carlos the Jackal when he was stationed in... Uh, Paris, I believe, uh, attached to the embassy.
1: Yeah, we, we didn't have much to do with the uh, legal attachés except for they ran liaison leads for us in foreign countries. Other than that, I didn't have okay. any personal interaction with them.
0: All right, well, on the domestic side, and I want to bring it in with Robin, too, I think he has mentioned that he worked the Robert Hansen case. Did you as well, or was that a different time period?
1: That was a different time period for me. I did not work the Robert Hansen case. I was a rookie at the time, and they didn't think oh, okay. uh, I was, uh, had enough experience to work the case. Wow. What,
0: are there any cases you can talk about that are particularly high profile that it's safe to name names because you know they've already been convicted or whatever?
1: Well, I worked with uh, John. Uh, I worked on, uh, there was a uh, person in Lockheed that was selling stealth technology to a foreign government. We got wind of it, and we set up a double agent operation. In other words, we pretended, or a false flag operation, we attend. We pretended to be somebody from a different country, and we approached uh, John Charlton and uh, told him we were interested in buying the, the information that he was selling. And he, we spent about six or eight months on that case, and he turned over a lot of classified information to us, uh, to our undercover agent, and we were subsequently able to uh, prosecute him and he pled guilty and served some time in prison.
0: That's fascinating. I've had a couple undercover people too and they were saying that FBI occasionally will own a store of sorts or like a warehouse or they may set up a scenario is that something you're familiar with?
1: Yeah, we we would do that whatever the the, the case requires we would uh set up whatever's necessary to uh, give us the highest probability of success and if that means setting up a front uh, store or a company then we would do that set up apartments or whatever is required in the case but those are typically do, the, larger cases
0: okay do they sometimes last a longer period of time like you can might have a store for say 10 years and it catches multiple people or is
1: yeah, I, I recall uh, a while ago, early in my career, they opened up a uh, storefront and they were selling uh, stolen goods. So it was a fencing operation. So they would videotape uh, everybody that came in to sell uh, stolen property. And at the end of the, a year, I think it was, or a year and a half, they, they uh, uh, were able to arrest all the people and they had them on videotape.
0: Is that a problem that you run into where, I I guess you're not undercover per se, and I know Robin always talks about how he's very straightforward. Like day one, he's FBI. Everybody knows he's FBI, even when he's recruiting. He, He uses relationship building and the rapport skills that you teach to turn people. Whereas undercover people who I've had on have run into problems where they run out of budget, or they pull them back, where they're not allowed to interact, and then they send them back two like, two months later, and that can really mess with the uh, investigation.
1: Yeah, that's why it's a, it's a very complex. When you run undercover operations, people don't realize how complex it is. There's a lot of moving parts. Everything everything has to to be working well, and if one of the pieces doesn't work, then the machine breaks down. The undercover operation breaks down. So you have to have a, a good case agent running the operation to keep everything together.
0: Have you ever done any of these?
1: Yeah, I've done several undercover operations, and uh, it's a lot of work. And you're almost like a director in a movie or a, a play, because you, you're in charge of the props. The stage is your undercover theater, and you have props, you have dialogue, you have you have to recruit the right actors to play the part. So you spend a lot of time screening actors, you know, other undercover agents that you want to make sure they have the right personality, they have language skills, they have the intellect and the knowledge to deal with your undercover target. And then once the operation begins, then you have to have surveillance, you have to have counter surveillance, you have to make sure that the, the operation is safe, you have to make sure that that your security is maintained and nobody can find out about it. So the target won't learn that he's a target of an undercover operation. And then there's always things that go wrong. And you know how the military says is, you know, you might have a good battle plan, but the first engagement, the battle plan falls apart. First casualty of war is the plan. And I'll tell you a funny story (laughs) about, uh, we had a, actually it was a John Charlton case that we talked about earlier we were wondering if he would show up with his classified information because we asked him to meet in a hotel room and give us some classified information, and we were wondering, I wonder if he'll show up because we weren't sure he would show up or not, because sometimes they make promises that they don't keep. So we, you know, a couple of the agents that were running security for him, he said, "Let's go get some coffee and donuts, and we we have a little time left." And so we were kind of wondering, kind of making bet. Well, some of us said, I bet he shows up. Some of us says, I bet he won't. Those agents came back from the coffee shop, and they said, we'll take that bet, and I'll bet a full year's wages that he's going to show up. And I said, what makes you so sure? He says, well, next to the coffee shop was Kinkles, and we saw him uh, uh, Xeroxing or copying classified information on the Kinkles machine next to the donut shop. <laughs> so. wow. Talk about coincidence. Out of curiosity, with the Kinkos,
0: can you um, subpoena the Kinkos itself? And because some of the copy machines actually have hard drives and memory, and every copy that is made through them, you can extract too to further prove he's doing this extra act.
1: We did that, and we were able oh, to. Okay. We were able to prove. <laughs> we were able to prove that he intentionally copied the material. We were able to connect the materially copied. With the material he gave us, so we had a good chain of evidence. Oh, perfect!
0: Now I feel smart. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Well, they do. You you can uh, that. What what typically what we have to do is to cleanse a copy machine. You have to run ten plain pieces of paper through it to brush it out of the memory because it only keeps it for so long. Right, and now though
0: memory is so cheap and hard drives, I think they can store like a month.
1: Yeah, they probably can now, but we're talking back in uh well, I was 90 it was in the mid 90s where memory was expensive. So those machines, oh, yeah, they only kept so many pieces, you know, for a limited amount of time, then they'd rewrite it, copy over it. So we were able to obtain it cuz it was That's fresh. I
0: remember. Yeah, I I remember my first gigabyte hard drive which was just immense. Can you believe it? Over, a th- you know, almost a thousand floppies. What are you going to do with that? Yeah. <laughs> Little did we know. <laughs> you got more. You got remember.
1: more memory in your watch now. Yes, <laughs> I do.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it used to be that um, you had more, more computer ability to put somebody on the moon on your phone than they did in NASA
1: at the time. Now it's probably more in the watch watch yeah and it's 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 getting even more incredible what they can do
0: now back to your investigation you had mentioned it was a false flag operation what is the difference between a false flag operation and a honeypot
1: well honeypot is when you you take a woman and you you try to develop a relationship with your target and through that romantic relationship and pillow talk then Uh, information would be, uh, revealed because the person's most vulnerable Mm. in that situation and they're more likely to divulge information. So a false flag is in John Charlton's case, he was contacting a foreign government and asked, you know, soliciting, you know, to sell classified information. He was selling to stealth technology. And, uh, Mm. what we did was we, we learned what country he was dealing with. And we got an agent to pretend they were from that country and contact John and say, hey, I'm from that country you sent a letter to. We're here to uh, respond and buy the. We're interested in buying the information. So it's an American FBI agent pretending to be from another country. That's why they say false flag.
0: Okay. Now, do you run into having to worry about entrapment issues? In terms of a defense lawyer coming out, I'm guessing in the false flag, you're saying, hey, no, I just put somebody out there and they had a flag up saying "Um, I'll buy stuff if anybody wants it and they volunteer. But how do you navigate that kind of issue?
1: What we do is in consultation with the assistant U.S. attorney that was in charge of this case, assigned to this case, what we would do is uh, ensure that there's no entrapment issues so we would we wouldn't force him to do anything we would just make the uh opportunity available to him and then we would uh set up situations where he would have to initiate contact to continue mm. the operation so there was several points during that operation where he could have not contacted our undercover agent and that would have ceased the treatment but if he then initiates that comp, uh Contact after a, a pause in the case—that's not entrapment. And if you set up a couple of those pauses and have them initiate it, so you're sitting around waiting. I wonder if he's going to initiate contact. And it's usually a, a code okay. word so or you a You deliberately message. ghost
0: him yeah. for a minute.
1: Yeah, and then we would wait. You know, and say, "Here's here's here's contact information. Call us if you're interested." So. He can always okay. not call us. So when he takes that, in this, that initiative, that shows that he is not entrapped.
0: Now, that's where you come into play, right? Is you have to be setting up this psychological need for him to get back the same way as you did with Vladimir in the newspaper, right?
1: It's exactly what we do. So we do set up psychological uh, uh, scenarios where. We, we can kind of set a world in which we want that person to live. So what we do is we, we psychologically develop that world. And then, of course, we can manipulate that world because it's our world that we've, we've developed. So it's okay, it's a yeah. complex thing.
0: Uh, do you work with um, the material written by Robert Cialdini, for example? Because I saw some definite
1: overlap in there. Oh, absolutely. He's the, the uh, godfather of uh, persuasion. He has developed a lot of principles okay. that uh, are very effective in persuasion, so yeah, I borrowed a lot of stuff from him as far as the persuasion like, goes in like, behavioral analysis he's the he's the go to guy
0: okay, yeah, I found that he's the go to guy for psychological principles of persuasion. Joe Navarro's kind of become the go to guy for body language.
1: Yeah, I work with Joe. In fact, we co-authored a book, Advanced Interviewing Techniques, and uh, a number of articles. So I, I'm a, a good friend of Joe's. We we worked on the behavioral analysis program together.
0: Awesome, man. You both write for Psychology Today, right? You write uh, Let Their Words Do the Talking?
1: Yes, and it's, uh, it's just a series of blogs on personal behavior, uh, how to get people to like you, how, elicitation, uh, various aspects of of human interaction. How to detect deception.
0: Now, your new book, and I haven't gotten into it yet. I'm I'm making assumptions out there, but are you focusing not only on elicitation but statement analysis?
1: No, the the truth detector, which is the the latest book, is about elicitation, and that is how to get people to tell you the truth and reveal sensitive information without them even knowing they're revealing sensitive information. Because we all want the best out of life. We want the best deals, the best relationships, the best negotiating uh, advantage. And a lot of that information, you, you, a lot of those, uh, in order to get the best out of life, you need knowledge. And a lot of that knowledge is kept sensitive or secret or confidential held close to the chest because then everybody would have the knowledge. So it's like it's like a car. You're going in to negotiate with a car. There's a lot of things that go into car, uh, that, that MSRP sticker, that sticker price on the car. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going into that. There's a lot of negotiating points that you can make. So if you know those things, then you'll, you'll, you'll get the best deal on your car. But they don't tell you those things. So what you have to do is elicit. And I spent some time eliciting from a star salesman from one of the largest car dealerships in the country. And through just casual conversation using elicitation tools, I learned a lot of insider information that helps me Mm -hmm. uh, buy cars.
0: That's awesome. You talked about elicitation in the like switch, too. I know um, when you were buying uh, some jewelry for your wife and you've got information out of them. What I love about the angle of truth detection is we spend a lot of time worrying about whether somebody is lying. And some legends I've talked to, like um, Avignon Sapir, who brought statement analysis in from Israel, is very focused on saying you don't care about that. You've got to find the truth. And then everything that goes away from that is the problem. And a lot of people are kind of backwards on that
1: right well he he worked uh i I actually took a number of his courses and uh oh Oh. i've subsequently uh learned a lot about statement analysis i wrote a book psychological narrative (laughs) analysis it's a uh, professional a professional method to detect deception in oral and written communications and that was my specialty in the bap unit i uh analyzed statements uh, analyzed inter- interrogation transcripts and uh, anything that had to do with the written word. And as an offshoot from that, there's this elicitation technique. Elicitation is a powerful technique because a lot of people spend time trying to detect deception. And mm-hmm. in those cases, people typically know that and they put their shields up. But if you ask people questions, then their shields go up. But elicitation is a, right. it's painless you don't ask any questions people will like you and they will thank you after the conversation and yet they will not they will not have known that they revealed a lot of personal information
0: it's very powerful for bad guys too though right uh kevin mitnick uh famous world famous hacker is probably one of the best social engineers in history i don't know if he was a great programmer but he was very good at elicitation and getting people to reveal things so he could hack them.
1: Yeah. And, and that's what con, con artists use all the time when they steal people's identities. And that's another uh, point we bring up in the book is you have to know the techniques people use to get it personal information from you in order to protect yourself from being a victim. So there's some called name it and claim it. In other words, if a person comes up to you and talks to you and then you recognize that technique is something that we that we talked about in the book, you can say, aha, that's an elicitation technique. That person wants to get my personal information. And that's called the presumptive statement, which is an elicitation. That's a presumptive statement. Mm -hmm. You name it, you claim it, and then you protect yourself. Do you do it out loud? No. Well, typically you do it inside your head. But one time, I'll tell you what happened. Once when my my son was uh, trying to negotiate a deal for a car, and I told him, "Name name it and claim it." So every time the salesman came up with a technique, he'd say, "Well, oh, that's a puppy dog. That's emotional effects. That's this." And the and the uh, I, I I just did that so he could practice recognizing techniques and saying them out loud. And then of course the salesman goes oh, like, wow. "Where are you getting wow. this information from?" <laughs> You must know somebody who sells cars. <laughs> so, but you don't have to you don't have to say it out loud, but you know, you have to at least recognize if a stranger comes up to you and asks, doesn't ask questions but initiates a conversation and you recognize those techniques, presumptive, 3rd party perspective, bracketing, one of the techniques we outline in the book, then you can say to yourself, Whoa, they're trying to get information from me. Sensitive information. Mm. And I'm not going to allow it because that's a technique I learned about. I want to name it, claim it, and then you protect yourself. So the book works both ways. It will help you be proactive to get information and it'll help you be reactive or defensive to protect yourself. Because like the the ring. You know, I wanted mm-hmm. to get the best deal on a ring. You have to know the markup, the salesperson's commission. What what are people will how low is that uh Merchant willing to go for that ring. And it, and I elicited all that information from the clerk. And therefore, I did calculations quickly in my mind. And I said, aha, this is what he'll probably sell the ring for. And then you can get the best deal. So, I mean, you can do it with real estate. You can do it with your kids. You know, oftentimes parents want to know what their kids are doing. But the kids are, are a lot of times reluctant to do it. Elicitation is perfect to get your 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 to set up an environment where your child wants to tell you things, not because they have to or they're forced to; they want to because of the environment you set up through through elicitation.
0: You know, bringing all this up, there's something that you could really help with. I've had it come in the comments before from different people who are, let's say, not mechanically inclined, and they are wondering. If they take their car to a mechanic and supposedly a repair is done or a series of repairs are done, are there any techniques to find out if the actual repairs were done or were legitimate? What would you recommend as maybe a question and answer path that they could do that could elicit that information?
1: Well, what I generally do is ask for the part. You say that part is bad, show me the part. Take it off the car, replace okay, it. So sh- show me the part, and then that th- th- that typically will let you know whether the part's broken or not. True. True. Okay. But th- a better line would be: you talk to your you you you, you interview your mechanic and say mm-hmm. you ask him questions like, uh, "Well, I, I'm trying to think of some questions you could ask a mechanic. You could you could ask him." Uh, how how he does things to find out if he's got integrity or you could test him by by saying this this I think this part is bad and then you can run a, a, a what we call vetting and I've done that once or twice I went into a, a mechanic and I said I think that part's broken you I think you need to replace it good mechanic will come back and say no that part's good there's no replacement necessary So you vetted what we do with spies a lot of times before we send them out on the big mission. We always have them do a bunch of little missions to vet them to make sure that they're they're being honest with us when they do things and that they can do things. So that's one way you could test a mechanic.
0: Okay. do you ever release bad information just to see what what comes back to you?
1: Yeah, it's called a poison pill. So we want to know how things uh how how information is transferred from one person to a foreign government. So what we do is we send out a poison pill. And what that does is that's the only, there's only one person that has the informi- that information. We give it to another person. Now there's two people that have it. If it shows up anywhere else, it has to come from one of those two people. And it's not coming from us. So it's coming from the guy we gave it to. And so we're able to track information uh, around the world to see who who's handling classified information. So we'll make up classified information. Well, it's just all made up stuff. We'll classify it and then send it out. We'll give it to our supposed, you know, asset. Then if it shows up in a foreign government, then we know that he gave it to them and we could track it.
0: Do you ever keep them on? Just deliberately knowing that you can keep pumping in crap information to screw up the enemy?
1: Oh, absolutely. We send a lot of disinformation through our assets. They unwittingly are passing a lot of information to uh, foreign governments that kind of mess up. So they're them so, up. Helpful. so helpful. They well, yeah, even, even if <laughs> there's a lot of things you can do, It's 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 a, it's a little bit different than working criminal work because you can... Use a lot more creativity.
0: Yeah, that's true because you don't have to go to court afterward and get accused of entrapment or anything else. Because I'm guessing a lot of the people you're dealing with, you're never going to arrest or have in custody or anything else. They're either diplomats and probably have some kind of immunity, or they're just foreign actors. They just go home, and you're never going to get them.
1: I can give you a case that I I brought out in the, I I, I talked about in the likes, which, and that was a a North Korean was in my area of operation, and they suspected him of being an agent of North Korea, and they wanted me to see what I could do with him, see if he he will work with us as a double agent, or see if he, you know, who he's recruited and what his his mission is. So he, he opened up a store, a little Photoshop store, and... I used curiosity because I wanted to come. I didn't want to come in undercover because once you break your cover, then you, you, the other person says you lied to me and therefore they don't sure. trust you because sure. you lied to me. So what I did was I set up curiosity. I went to a shop when he wasn't there and I said, sorry, I missed you, Jack. I left a note and I went the next time a couple weeks later when he wasn't there, sorry, I missed you again, Jack Schaefer. So what do you think this guy's thinking? Who
0: is this Jack Schaefer?
1: Who's this Jack Schaefer? The third time I went in, when he wasn't there, I put Jack Schaefer, and then I put my phone number. And I didn't even get back to the office before I got that call. You know, it was a cold call. So I got the cold call, and then I went to his shop when he was really busy. And I walked in and said, Jack Schaefer, FBI. And I, I showed him my creds. And of course, if he's an agent he's going to go into panic mode and I I want to talk to him when he's not in his panic mode. So Mm -hmm. I says, I told him, I'll come back when you're not so busy. Mm -hmm. And when I did go back, he had calmed down and kind of readied himself for the interview. So then I said, why don't we walk down to the uh, uh, cafe? That was a couple blocks away. And the reason I did that is to get him away from his uh, home turf where he Mm -hmm. felt comfortable and when we stroll, we, we are predisposed to talk because anytime we stroll with people or walk with people, we have a tendency to talk. And the second thing is I went into this restaurant and I wanted to buy him something for several reasons. The first reason is uh, 70% of all information is shared over food and drink. So think mm. about the last time you shared information. It was sure. typically over sure. food and drink. The second reason, I wanted to uh, set up reciprocity. If I buy him food and drink, and in this case coffee, mm-hmm. then he's going to have a predisposition to reciprocate by giving me something, and that's personal information. The third reason is I look at where he places his cup. If he places mm. his cup between me and him, that forms a barrier. That means he's not yet ready to talk. We haven't developed rapport strong enough for me to ask delicate questions. So I waited, and I developed rapport, and then I waited for the time where he took that coffee cup and he put it to one side. He took it away Mm. from between us and put it to one side, and that signals that rapport been developed. So those are all the reasons. And then he asked me, he says, so, Mr. Schaefer, what do you want? I said, well, you called me. You must have something on your mind. What do you want to talk about? Oh,
0: you have a subversive sense of humor.
1: <laughs> well, that is, it's exactly what happened. So we, we uh, set up a lot of, uh, you know, strategies for interviewing people that give us the greatest probability of success.
0: It's funny you mentioned walking and what popped immediately in my mind is um I've had Greg Hartley on multiple times I'm not sure if you're familiar with him.
1: Yeah, I work with Greg He's Hartley. Uh okay. I know him quite well.
0: <laughs> he was saying that all interrogation leads back to the Nazi Hans Sharp.
1: Yes, and that's I I gave a a chapter on Hans in the in the truth detector. Oh, I can't wait to read this. <laughs> he used elicitation techniques on the the prisoners and got more information than the Gestapo did using uh, torture.
0: Fascinating, man.
1: He's he's considered the the grandfather of uh, elicitation. Well, and you know what's interesting is all the elicitation techniques are very familiar in the intelligence world because that's what Mm -hmm. we thrive on. Those are our tools of the trade. But sure. Very few people sure. outside the intelligence world realize the power of elicitation in learning about deals. When they when you go to buy a house, recently my wife and I were looking at a house, and we wondered if there was uh, somebody told us that some of the houses have low water or high water levels, and and the basements tend to flood. So mm. if you ask a real estate person directly. Does the basement flood? They probably say, Well, there's no flooding issues, not that we know of. And you you don't they don't always tell you the truth, unfortunately.
0: Sometimes they legally cannot, by the way.
1: But sometimes they they skirt around sure. issues. Okay. And so, well, we walked in the basement and I said, Wow, they sure did a good job since you know repairing from the flood. <laughs> And he went, yeah, and they also put in a sump pump and did this and did that. And I said, okay, so the place does flood. So I got to the truth without without uh, asking a direct question. And I don't even think that real estate agent realized he gave up information. Probably not. I
0: I think I might have accidentally got that because I moved to Atlanta many years ago, and we were with an agent traveling from place to place to place. And legally, they're not allowed to tell you certain things, like uh, what the crime rate is in an area or schools or whatever, because they can't prejudice you. But what I noticed is that we went to this one place and she locked the car doors.
1: Well, there you go. There's a clue. <laughs> I
0: just, <laughs> I said, that's very a uh, pretty high crime area here, eh? Oh, and what? I'm like, well, I noticed you locked your doors. You never did that anywhere else.
1: Uh oh. Yeah, so you can yeah. That yeah. that that would be a good use of elicitation. So the crime rate's high here. You see somebody lock the door. So oh, the crime rate's high here. What are they going to say? Yes or no? Or else, or else they have to go where I call the land of is, and that's that area between yes and no. And that was named after President Clinton's <laughs> famous answer. So that's another um, way to to detect deception. If somebody, if you ask somebody a direct yes or no question and they refuse to answer yes or no, then they have to go to the area between yes or no, which is the land of is, where there's obfuscation, half-truths, innuendos, suppositions. And then what you want to do is if you don't get a yes or no answer, then you repeat the question, the yes or no question. And if they again take you to the land of is, the probability of deception skyrockets.
0: You want to watch a good case of that. Watch Mark Zuckerberg's uh, testimony. In front of Josh Hawley in Congress, in the Senate.
1: Okay, well that's land of is. So oh, I devo- 100%. I, devo- you, 100%. Yes. I can. I can share. I can share another good technique that people might be interested in, mm. and that's called the "well" technique. If you ask somebody a direct yes or no question, and they begin their response with the word "well," it means they are about to tell you an answer they know you're not expecting. The example mm. I like to use is. If I send my kid to to do his homework in his room, and I hear nothing but shenanigans going on, no homework. And then he comes out, and I said, did you do your homework? And he says, well, that means he's going to give me an answer he knows I'm not expecting. Of course, the answer he thinks I'm expecting is, yes, Dad, I did my homework. (laughs) If he answers with the word, well, it means he's going to give me an answer he knows I'm not expecting, which is anything but yes, which is what? No. So I say, go back in there and do your homework. Why well, do you know I didn't do it, Dad? I'm in the FBI. Don't worry about it. Get in there and do it. <laughs> so if, if you if you ask your boss, am I getting a pay raise this year? Well, that means you're not getting a pay raise. You can use that well technique to test veracity of people without them even knowing that their veracity is being tested.
0: That sounds similar or in the same Category as the but, as in everything before a but is irrelevant, right? And what was it, Mark McClish Who I've had on, he's a statement analysis guy. Um, he said he joked that they used to call that behold the underlying truth, yes. <laughs> okay, I'll My. buy off on that. <laughs> that was fun. Um, to wrap things up this has been fantastic and I want to deep dive as much as possible. I have a live stream where I bring in the audience into a live chat. And I was wondering if you might be available in the future to come on, say with Robin Drake to answer audience questions as well as maybe all chat together and, and dig into this. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be more than happy to do it. Okay. Fantastic. Now, Everybody needs to rush out and get the like switch. If you haven't got it yet, get it, get it now, catch up. It's like back homework. And your new book, The Truth Detector, I've already bought it. I haven't read it. I'm super excited to get into that because that seems to tie right into more elicitation and everything that I'm really, really into. But I do enjoy the like switch, especially for establishing relationships and your friend signals. Um, In the days of COVID now, with masks, the uh, eyebrow flash, the head cock, I think are especially valuable for making people feel comfortable when we're all a little bit frightened to begin with.
1: Yeah, most of us uh, rely on the nonverbal cues. And when we put a mask on, we're severely limiting our ability to detect and evaluate nonverbal cues. Because we're missing uh, on almost half of them.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to beat up the eyebrow flash. <laughs> well, you know, everybody I do, I go out of my way to go, hey, you know, just a, a, anything to calm down.
1: Uh, well, you know, it's a long distance friend signal. And if you uh, approach people, and once I notify people or make them aware of the, the, the eyebrow flash, they say, I didn't realize, but I do this hundreds of times a day. And I go, yeah, you do. But I, how come I never <laughs> noticed it before? Well, it's kind of a semi-conscious uh, cue that tells other people we're friends, we're not a threat. So we do it automatically. But once you're yeah, aware you of it, then you, you can do. intentionally do it.
0: Yeah, and you talked about the urban scowl. And I, I want to wrap it up in this because I have a weird theory. You could tell tell me if I'm right or wrong. A lot of the most famous Likeable people, say like Johnny Carson, are actually from the Midwest, if you will, or parts of the country where you know people are are very open and friendly and engaging. Do you think that perhaps that sort of upbringing in the small town or open society could have been an um, unintentional or unrealized advantage? to where they were performing all these techniques, even though they never realized they were taught these techniques. And going to New York, they're like, holy cow, this person is just really
1: nice. Yeah, I think you're right, because I grew up in the south side of Chicago, and you have to walk around with the urban scouts so you don't become prey. (laughs) And yet I met my, my future wife out in the suburbs, and I went out in the suburbs, and all her friends thought I was mean They didn't want to talk to me because I walked around in the suburbs with my urban scowl. And then when my wife mentioned it to me, I said, oh, I better get rid of the urban scowl because I'm in an environment where I don't have to be on guard from predators all the time. So once I realized that, then I was able to use it in different environments intentionally. So if you see a panhandler, Give them the urban scowl. Don't look at them. Don't give them an eyebrow flash. Don't smile. Don't do anything. Just walk right by with a stern face. Mm. And then they won't approach you at all. So you avoid a lot of situations by knowing how to just what, what, what nonverbal cues to display in different situations.
0: Yeah. And I appreciate you bringing that up because, you know, I'd be walking around always being, Hey, look at me. And, I used to get hit up by panhandlers all the time. Now I've got it to where um, I have headphones in, whether they're on or off, they're always on. (laughs) I never (laughs) hear them. Hey, sir, sir.
1: (laughs) 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 Yeah, that works. (laughs) Well, that's a cheat, but well, that's a that's a that's a a a shoot offshoot of the uh, the urban scowl. You're just not giving anybody any attention. And what it is, is it's negative attention. You know, it's, it's, I don't even want to hear you.
0: Definitely. Definitely. Well, Jack, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean, for free, it is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands or you can go to unstructuredpod.com and there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. What was that like
1: might just be the most intriguing podcast you'll ever hear. Each episode is a conversation with a regular person who's been through an extremely unusual situation like Jeremy, who was bitten by a rattlesnake or Jennifer who accidentally killed someone or Luke who, who got caught smuggling cocaine real people in unreal situations listen and subscribe at what was that like.com. hey i'm studio steve
0: and i'm veronica
1: and we, and we are, are the, the podcast we have a podcast all about podcasting we cover everything related to the craft How to start a podcast, how to improve a podcast, how to promote a podcast, and how to reach a bigger audience. So come check out our podcast,
0: Pod Sound School. We're on all of the podcast players or on our website, podsoundschool.com. We are dedicated to provide our podskies with up-to-date, easy, and actionable information, sometimes outrageous, and always fun.
1: And now, back to your regularly scheduled programming.